Hello, I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. I'm here chatting with Charlotte Church, a Welsh singer-songwriter, actress and television presenter. Charlotte rose to fame before she became a teenager as a classical soprano before branching into pop music in the mid-2000s. By 2007, she had sold more than 10 million records worldwide, including over 5 million in the United States. We're doing the interview at Charlotte's Hotel. She's in San Francisco for a gig tonight at the Rickshaw Stop. Hi, Charlotte. Thanks for joining me today. No worries. Thanks for having me. So now in her late 20s, Charlotte, whom we heard at the top of the show performing the track Say It's True from her latest album, One and Two, sounds quite different today to how she sounded when she was a little girl. Here's Charlotte singing on the UK's Big Big Talent show when she was only 11. Yeah, Yezu seems like a world away from the stuff Charlotte sings today. But is there really such a difference? What I'm interested in exploring with Charlotte on tonight's show is how a voice, and Charlotte's in particular, changes over time and what aspects remain the same. How much about how we sing are we fully in control of and what are the factors that affect our voices over time that we have little or no control over as we mature? Let's start by talking about your latest album, Charlotte. Um, so I'm struck by the many different vocal colours in the music. For example, in The Mistress and Nerve, you're exploring voice distortion. Um, there are these incredible money notes in The Rise that I really like, which showcase your easy range and your bell-like tone. And then you have this sort of ballsy, feral sound on uh, Breach of the Peace. So I'm curious to know, how deliberate are your choices in each case? I actually think not necessarily that deliberate. I think that... Um I sort of, when we're in the writing process, etc., I can, I can sort of sing it, or I just can't. There are some, there are certain songs which I don't know. Certain, you know, when I when I flip to a different to a certain note from my chest voice into my head voice, you know, maybe it, it's not a big enough um, jump. Um, just things like that. There are certain songs that I just think that's not going to work for me, and I know straight away. Um, and then other songs which just are sort of quite easy and obviously they change slightly over time but generally they sound exactly as they sound the first time I sang them. It's quite a natural thing. Um, and I think that's probably because, I mean, I had a chest voice, I had a big belt-in chest voice before I, I went into any sort of classical singing when I was like eight. And I used to sing, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow from Annie and really pretentious precocious way etc um so and then i went into singing lessons when i was nine mainly because my my auntie caroline had nodules when she was really young so she said to my mum, you should really get her into singing lessons make sure she's using her voice properly um and then my singing teacher started off by you know when she heard this big belting eight-year-old coming in trying to force vibrato she was like um no 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 none of that in here you're gonna have to um you're going to have to sing really, really quietly. So what she made me do was sing um, Somewhere Out There, which is a lovely little tune from American Tale, as quietly as I possibly could for weeks and weeks. And it just sort of grew, just sort of grew, and, and the noise got louder and more resonant and whatnot. Um, and it just kind of went from there. So, But I'm kind of lucky that I've always had the ability to use both voices, and they're both 
pretty rangy as well. Um, yeah, but my, my chest voice is quite uncontrollable. It's super duper feral. And, and, you know, to have like, because I know exactly how to control my head voice and I know how to control my chest voice to a certain extent, but it's so loud. Um, it's so loud in a room. If I did it in here, you'd be like, whoa. Um, Can you demo it? I can't. All right, no worries. Tonight. Um, yeah, but it's it's a weird sort of noise. Um, I don't really know where it comes from, but I come from a family of singers, like everybody in my family sings. So were your family members like your first influences as a singer? Absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. Lots of my family do sort of like the cabaret circuits in South Wales and stuff and um, all of the youngsters in the family, all of the cousins, like all of my cousins, like fourth and fifth cousins um, and first and second and third, um, they just all sing. We can all, you know, have you know, have a little tune, but we've all got totally different voices. But it's interesting where you know that sort of musical. Um, it's just sort of passed down through generations. It's sort of strange. Okay, so when you were eleven, you sang um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's "Pia Yesi" over the telephone on a television show this morning, right in nineteen ninety-seven. That's so weird. Why were you singing over the telephone? Rather, why why did they not have you in the studio that day? Basically, they. Um, they had a phone-in a, a phone contest for talented children. Um, and because I went, I was a choir, I was a chorister at that time, um, and got a scholarship into this really posh school, which had longer school holidays. Um, and so, therefore, all of the other kids had gone back to school, um, but I was still home in my nan's house. So I didn't ask. I just decided. So it's lucky I got through. That's why I make that point, because if, if all of the kids would have been at home and not in school, then I probably never would have got through. But... Um, yeah, so I I didn't ask my nan. I just sort of phoned this TV program on the sly, and then sang to a couple of researchers. And then when they said, "Okay, we're going to put you live on the show. We need to speak to an adult now," I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> and then I had to call my auntie Caroline, who was in the house as well. I was like, "Caroline, I've gotten through to be on telly. I'm going to sing. Will you speak to them for me?" She was like, "What's going on here?" Yeah, and so uh, and everything sort of happened from there, really. It was strange. So what made you decide to be a professional singer? I mean, was that the turning point, or did that come a bit later? I never decided. It just sort of happened. Because, I mean, when, you know, when that happened, I was, what, 11, 10 or 11? And then, you know, I got a big deal and everything when I was 12. Mm -hmm. So it was never... It was just sort of not necessarily out of my hands, because I don't think it was necessarily in anybody else's hand. It was just a circumstantial sort of thing. I think I probably would have ended up being a singer anyway because I think that is probably the thing I do best. But yeah, it wasn't. There was no turning point where I thought this is what I want to do with my life. So Wales, of course, is well known as a hotbed of singing. Can you talk about the vocal music culture that surrounded you when you were growing up? And you mentioned you're a chorister, and obviously everyone knows about the men's choirs in in Wales. But can you just talk a bit more about what it was like to grow up in Wales around all that singing? I mean, you had it in your family, but elsewhere too, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, a lot of singing in Wales, a lot of music, but, you know, a lot of singing. And the, the Welsh male voice choirs, you know, there's something unbelievably stirring to be, you know, a Welsh person listening to a Welsh male voice choir sing some Welsh songs. <laughs> Not exclusively, obviously, there are other things. But, um, yeah, I grew up, up around lots of opera, really, um, just generally the, the sort of classics, um, the popularist opera sort of stuff. Uh, that's what my nan and my mum liked, lots of Puccini. And it was only then when I when I was a girl chorister 
that I kind of started getting into more choral pieces and different composers and stuff. And and I had to strip the vibrato out of my voice. I wasn't allowed to use any vibrato. Was that was that difficult for you to do? Yeah, I found that really tough because um, it was really unnatural. Um, yeah, so I didn't really like that very much. Um, I enjoyed singing with other girls in a choir and making this beautiful noise, all of us with, you know, beautiful harmonies, etc. But none of it was too complex. We weren't, you know, we weren't banging. We weren't great, you know, girl choristers, but we were pretty good. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, I just, just lots of music. And I used to go singing with my granddad. My granddad every Sunday used to take me to a place... Um, well, first of all, it was called the Schooner, and then it was a second place called the Boardwalk, which is where, um, like, there'd be an organist there, and you take down your sheet music, and everybody would just get up for a sing song. Loads of different people, so some people would be there. There was a guy there I remember used to play the spoons, so he'd get up and he'd play the spoons, and then there's one guy who used to come up and do Frank Sinatra and loads of old jazz standards, and yeah, loads of weird music actually. And yeah, I'd often get up then and do Cheating Heart or something with my Bambi or Crazy. Yeah, Patsy Cline Crazy. Yeah, so rather varied early musical youth. Well, let's listen to more of your early singing star, Charlotte. Here's your version of the English hymn Jerusalem by Hubert Parry and William Blake from your first album, Voice of an Angel, released in 1998 when you were just 12 years old. If you just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. I'm coming to you from downtown San Francisco where I'm chatting with the Welsh singer Charlotte Church. So after your first album came out, your career really massively took off. You sold millions of records worldwide and you were the youngest artist with a number one album on the British classical crossover charts. What did all this fame at a young age mean for you as a developing singer in terms of how you used your voice? I suppose I just kind of got stuck in a rut. I didn't need to push myself any further. Everybody already thought that I was like this kid wonder. I stuck with the same singing teacher for a long time, which I was happy that I did actually. Um, and she was incredible and she'd never let me do any arias that I wanted to do, etc. She'd always make sure she kept it really easy. So um, I suppose I just got a little bit lazy with it and I didn't really push myself as hard as I could have. I think that... If all of the fame and everything hadn't have happened, I probably would have gone on and trained properly because I think it's important. Everybody always says, oh, you know, that I was like a little opera singer and I totally wasn't. I was completely, a, a you know, a popularist classical crossover artist. Um, and at the time, whenever people used to say things like that, like, you know, it wasn't pure and it was, you know, sort of tainting classical music, etc., watering it down. I used to get really offended, but I totally agree now. <laughs> When the night 
I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. My guest tonight is vocalist Charlotte Church, who started off her career at the age of 11 as a classical soprano, but has for the past few years focused on pop music. We're talking about how voices change and evolve over time. In 2000, Charlotte released Dream a Dream, an album of Christmas carols. It included Charlotte's first foray into a more pop-influenced style in the title track, uh, Dream a Dream, which we just heard. And the song borrowed its melody from Fouris Pavan and featured the young American country singer Billy Gilman. Charlotte, what made you decide to explore beyond the classical, traditional classical realm and, and traditional song realm? Where did that impulse come from? It wasn't from me once again, rather cynically. Um, it was uh, basically, um, we just, um, we got in a, a, a different producer to the producers that I'd always worked with, which I, who, who I loved, like, uh, who was Jeremy Colton and Grace Rowe. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's difficult for me to remember because it was such a long time ago and I was so little. And, you know, so much happened then in a short space of time. But I think it might have been something to do with the label that they wanted this particular producer. Um, yeah, and so it wasn't that I was necessarily against it because anything to try and draw my peers into what I was doing was great. So put a beat behind it, maybe they'll like it. I remember playing my friend's Dream a Dream for the first time in the car and they were like, nah. <laughs> don't get it now I know you have you said you had this big chest voice when you were just a kid and, and you were surrounded by you know all kinds of different sorts of music in your family but did you have to do anything uh, to your voice uh, when you started singing more pop style repertoire initially did you have to kind of retrain or do things differently I started going around a couple of different singing teachers just because I wanted their opinion and I think when you reach a point of adulthood, that's a good thing to do. I, I, my adulthood, I mean, you know, I was probably 16, 17, 18. Yeah, so I, I sort of um, started training with a couple of different people that I'd heard about um, who all gave me. And I, there was a, there was one great guy called Ian Shaw, who's a jazz singer. And yeah, he viewed things in a totally different way. And he 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 taught me how to breathe in a really different way to any, any ways of breathing I'd ever learned before. This really sharp quick breathing from the abdomen and I was like what on earth is that what are you doing <laughs> um yeah but that was all interesting but I've I've always gone back to what I initially learned um what's that in a nutshell I suppose just all of the simplistic sort of classical singer techniques really just how to breathe properly how to hold yourself properly how to control your voice how to control your voice where to place it um I'm surprised you say these things are simplistic because they're actually quite, you know, difficult. I mean, I suppose you've been doing them all your life, but... Yeah, but then also, like, I've never studied in a, you know, uh, in a conservatoire or, you know, a university or whatever. Um, I sort of studied when I was really young with one singing teacher. Um, so I can't... It's hard for me to gauge how complicated or not complicated these things are. So, no, I, I didn't. I didn't have to retrain necessarily it was it was always there the whole way through I just never used it really yeah but I think that when I started making pop music I made a horrible noise I made a horrible noise with my voice it was really hard and harsh and my chest voice hadn't at all developed into what it is now so when I listen back to that sort of stuff it sounds really screechy and harsh to me what do you uh, think of the term crossover? I mean, do you think it's just a, a sort of a marketing thing or is there any other thought behind it that you think is sort of useful as an expression? 
Well, I think as an expression, you know, it will maybe help the purists in whatever genre deal better with what's happening to their genre um, in terms of, look, we're not saying that this is, you know, classical music or that this is um, folk or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that would help people who are, you know, very pure about whatever genre of music that they're into, genres, um, deal with it, that, that everybody else knows that this is something that's not quite that, um, but has elements of that. So I suppose it's useful in that way. Um, I don't really, I've, I've never really thought about it, to be honest. I don't really like terminology in music. Music's about feeling, not about words, unless it's lyrics, really. So, yeah, whenever anybody asks me what sort of genre of music I'm doing now, not only do I find it impossible to explain because I have no idea how to categorise it, um, but I also want people to decide for themselves because I should imagine that everybody who listens to it would think something slightly different um, rather than me just force-feeding, well, it's this, this, this and this. Mm -hmm. um, so that eliminates all of you other people who would never listen to that sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, genre-defining is, is not my bag. Not mine either. <laughs> this programme ranges all over the place. Um, but many classical artists produce one or two so-called crossover albums uh, during their careers, and then they continue to focus on the classical repertoire. Um, the opera singer Renee Fleming is one example that comes to mind. Here she is singing Endlessly by Muse. That, that was uh, Renee Fleming with Endlessly by News. Now, Charlotte, you're different to a lot of cross, so-called crossover artists. Um, I don't even want to use that term because you've made a big departure away from the classical repertoire and you haven't, it's not like you've dipped your toes into it and essentially, you know, in, in a career that's essentially classical. To what extent do you see the crossover music that you've done as serving literally like a bridge to take you across from singing classical into pop and other genres? Oh, I think that it was a brilliant start. I'm glad I got to, uh, I learnt to use my voice properly. I'm glad that I got to sing with orchestras all over the world, which is, uh, which is great experience and which is also, I learnt so much um, from, from all of that, from all, playing with all of those musicians and being in rehearsals with conductors and, and all of that good stuff. Um, so I feel like my 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 musical basics and my musical basis is strong, you know, and my understanding and my feel and for, and for rhythm and everything. And I couldn't think of a better way to have got to the point where I'm at than than how I than how I've done it basically. And I've never really planned anything out. I never kind of said, "Okay, I want to be a classical singer," or "Okay, I'm fed up with classical now. I'm going to be a pop singer." It's just all sort of happened. I yeah, I sort of um uh I sort of go where the wind blows me a little. I mean I can stay reasonably focused if, if needed. Um but generally um 
yeah, I'm sort of pretty easygoing uh, and just um, see where life takes me, really, rather than force my own journey. Yeah. So I think I think that the reason I initially went into sort of popular stuff um, or pop music is because I wanted to write. I just wanted to, to write my own melodies and some words. And so my first couple of songs were horrendous. And they've hopefully got better over time as I've learned more and um, lived more, which is also obviously very important. I mean, I still sing arias in my kitchen occasionally because now I'm allowed. Now my old singing teacher, Lulu, can't stop me. <laughs> I was intrigued to find a recording of you singing with Josh Groban, a singer whose name is synonymous with this word crossover artist. What can you tell us about your collaboration with Groban and, and other so-called crossover projects you've, you've done over the years? He was amazing to work with, actually, and I loved his voice. Um, it was really easy, lovely, easy voice. And he was a lovely guy. I mean, when I worked with him, he was just starting out. He was sort of, he just sort of hit. And he, would, he used to get super duper nervous. And I'd be like, <laughs> I was about 16, the old pro. <laughs> like, you know, you know, give him, calming him down beforehand. It'll be okay, you know. Put my hand on his shoulder. It's all right, Josh, don't worry about it. And he'd be really nervous. Um, yeah, we did the uh, the closing ceremony at the Winter Olympics as well, where we sang the prayer. And people seem to love that song, our, our version of it as well. Um, my auntie still plays it all the time. Well, let's hear that now. Here's Charlotte Church and Josh Groban with the prayer. is Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman and I'm chatting with the Welsh singer Charlotte Church about her career as a vocal artist and the changes that she's gone through. In 2002, at the age of 16, you released this best of album called Prelude and it's been described as, uh, you know, a sort of farewell to your classical career, that album. Why did you decide to quit singing classical music? I wanted, I think how it originally happened is that the record company wanted to put out a best of. Because, you know, your four albums down, kids. It's time for a best of. And I wanted to go to university, which meant that I'd have to um, stay on at school and do my A-levels. But I was sort of promised that, you know, I had this one last album to do. And then... Um, I'd be able to get a place in an American university anyway. Like, it wouldn't matter that I didn't have my A-levels and all of that. And so I kind of went along with it, and then that all kind of fell apart after, you know, doing the whole promotional stuff, whatever. And also, I started... I was a teenager then, so I started rebelling, which was fun. And, uh, yeah, and I just... I, I'd, I'd, have, I'd had such a high, intense level of fame for those four years, and especially in the UK... There was a lot of press scrutiny and stuff and people were always talking about my weight and boyfriends and sex and, you know, it was sort of, it was all a bit sordid. And 
I just I just didn't want it anymore really. I just wanted to be in Cardiff in Wales with my friends, with the people that I'd known and I wanted to do normal teenage things and I wanted for nobody to follow me but unfortunately they did every day. Um, but that's the way the cookie crumbled. So I think that's probably why I was just jaded and I'd had enough. It wasn't necessarily about the music, though I think that if I, at that, once again at that point, if I if I had have squirreled myself away, like literally have moved to Nepal for a little while, um, and trained, I probably would have gone into uh, into being a you know a, an opera singer, mm -hmm. um, at that point. But life took me on a different journey. So did you actually take a complete break from singing at that point, or were you continuing? I I was writing bits and bods with different people, but nothing very serious. And then the pop album I released them when I was 18 or 19, I think. Um, that took a while to get together because uh, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do, who I wanted to write with. I didn't know that world. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about marketing a little bit because, you know, when you're a child prodigy, you know, uh, relatively easy to market you know here's this very very unusual kid with this massive uh, voice that you normally associate with someone at least twice her age and in a completely you know rarefied sphere of classical music and then you're reinventing yourself a bit later as a pop star where there are lots of people you know with with great voices how was that how was it starting out and um, and marketing yourself in this new way I mean, it was okay. I was once again kind of young, so I was a bit silly. I made some silly decisions that I'd never make nowadays. Um, I made quite a raunchy video um, where I was, it was, I don't know, we were supposed to be some showgirls or something, um, which I'd never do nowadays. Like, my feminist standards would never see to see that happen. But I was young and I thought that that was a good idea, you know, and that was, that's what the song was about. And so that totally warranted some nakedness and everybody's naked anyway in, in the music world. So, um, yeah, I just got totally sucked into it and I didn't really, I couldn't see the wood for the trees, really. Um, and totally felt totally ununique. I'd always felt unique before. I'd always been made to feel unique. Mm -hmm. And I went into this world where I was just another pop tart, really. And I didn't like it very much at all. And so I made one album of pop fluff and uh, then decided I don't like this at all. I want to get out of this immediately. Um, but it took, for, it took for me to do it to, to sort of figure out that I think that the way I've, I've got to where I am right now, and I think this is the music that I'll probably do for the rest of my life, exactly where I am now, um, I mean, of course, it will grow and change and evolve, but maybe not quite so um, as wildly as it has in the past. But I think I just eliminated all of the other options. Yeah. It's nice in a way because not many singers get to explore so much so early in their lives. You know, you get on a track and you and you pretty much stick to it. And OK, you might dip your toes in and do your crossover album if you're Renee Fleming. But, you know, get your jollies out that way. But basically you're stuck, except you haven't been stuck. No, no, absolutely not. But I've also been really lucky in the fact that my voice is really versatile and has allowed me that I know that if I wanted to go and make a badass R&B album, like a synth heavy, you know, I could probably do that. Um, I probably got the amount of, um, oh, what's the word, maneuverability maybe. 
So there are many aspects of classical singing technique that carry over into your singing today, despite all the changes. You know, you have this razor-sharp diction and articulation, a really clear tone and, and, an, and an evenness of tone across your entire range. How much would you say of a role does your classical background play in your life as a, as a singer today? A massive. It plays a massive role in my, sing, in my singing. Um, I can't be lazy um, in terms of... Um, with diction, etc. I just can't do it. Um, it's like my my brain just won't allow me. So if if I wanted to, if I sometimes if I think right artistically, a good decision here would be to slur a little or something. You know what I mean? Or make that consonant not so sharp. But I just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I must have a little Louise Ryan, who was my first singing teacher in my head, saying no, lengthen your vowels. So let's hear a song from that album now, from one and two. Here's, oh, no, no, let's hear a song, in fact, from your first pop album, Tissues and Issues. Here's Show Me a Little Faith. You're listening to Voice Box. I'm Chloe Veltman. I am chatting with Charlotte Church, a Welsh vocalist who started her career in classical music and now mostly focuses on pop. We're talking about the various factors that go into an artist's evolving direction as a singer over time. And please feel free to visit us on Facebook and connect with us on Twitter. And you can find out information about our project at voicebox-media.org. We just heard Show Me Little Faith from Charlotte's 2006 album, Tissues and Issues. The track has a storming Motown sound, which really shows off the vocalist's artistic range. So were people who had known and loved you as a singer of classical repertoire shocked by your change of career direction as a singer? Uh, I think people were massively disappointed when I released Tissues and Issues. A lot of people loved it because it was such frivolous throwaway pop. Um, but a lot of people were like, what have you done? And looking back, myself, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like, what did you do? just because I've got a much more um, firm grip on what it is to be artistic and creative and to use that. And I suppose I've always had it and I'm just, um, I'm a bit annoyed with my younger self for sort of not really seeing that, but you know, it's all, it all comes in time, isn't it? You know, you can't really change the past. Um, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't, like I said, because that sort of I've I've had to eliminate all of those possibilities in in order to get where I am. Um, this new stuff, because it's so much more interesting, and I, that's every part about it. I think that's from the songwriting. It's not easy music. It's a lot of it's kind of complicated. It's not a four chord bash. Um, they're reasonably well. They're, they're really difficult melodies most of the time, and also the lyric, the lyrical content can be really heavy and deep, and sometimes sad and melancholy. And so it's not it's not very easy music. And I think I think you have to like music a lot, like that that you really have to have music in your life to be able to sort of digest and appreciate the sort of music I'm doing now. And I suppose that sort of limits 
the audience of, of who may listen to it, but there you are. Once you've once you found your passion, you found your passions. You know that's that's it then. So I've sort of chosen art over commerce every day of the week nowadays. Whereas I was I wasn't like that when I was younger. But when you're younger, you weren't making a ton of the decisions, anyways. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, and I didn't really understand about life in general, or what the whole art versus commerce meant. It's only as I got older that I realised that that was a battle that I was actually a part of, that had no idea I was ever a part of it. Um, and I chose art, really. Do you really think the two are mutually exclusive? I mean, do you think it's possible to be truly an artist and also be commercially successful? Absolutely, I, I do. I think it's becoming rarer and rarer. I think there's less opportunity to be truly, you know, a truly creative powerhouse and be able to push that through to the nth to where people can recognize that. Also, unfortunately, in this world that we're living now, all of the mainstream is so digitalized, is, you know, the beats are to uh, an impossibly exact grid, which you would never have. A drummer would never make those noises. Um, and it's not necessarily, it's not, I'm not saying, oh, you know, it should only ever be acoustic drums. I love electronic drums. We have them in our live sets. It's awesome, but it's the human behind it, you know, um, that gives it the feel and the groove. And, you know, with auto-tune as well on every instrument possible and basically everything being made perfect within an inch of its life is making people's ears attuned to that perfection. So people can't listen to anything out of that perfection. They just immediately think it's rubbish. Have you ever used auto-tune? No, never. I mean, there'll be certain times on, um, on EPs 1 and 2 if I've hit a real bum note, which is sort of rare. My tuning's generally pretty good. Um, but I've but it's got a like a, a different vibrato to how I would usually do it. Then sometimes we might sneak it up to make it a bit more bearable. Mm. But never, never perfect. So Charlotte, between two thousand six and two thousand eight you hosted the Charlotte Church show on Channel Four in the UK. Hi, I'm really okay. So uh, you've been in Britain for a few days now. Mm -hmm. Do you like it? I love it here. Yeah, I've been here for three days or four days. I love it. It's You've exciting been out to be back. Um, I've been doing a lot of promo, so I've been doing stuck in the hotel doing a lot of interviews and stuff. Yeah, but yeah, I love it here. And uh, your new album, "The Best Damn Thing," is released next month, and uh, that's a pretty bold claim. So, do you think it'll live up to its title? Yeah. And um, we just heard a snippet of you interviewing the Canadian pop star Avril Lavigne. How does working with your voice as a TV talk show host in that setting differ from singing? I suppose with that, it was a lot to do with comedy. So it was all about comic timing and the variations in your tone, um, etc. But I didn't get too far into it um, because, once again, I wasn't, I wasn't doing it for art purposes. Mm -hmm. And I should have been. And I'm still annoyed with my younger self. <laughs> should have been more arty. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I, I tried to sort of learn from the writers and the people around me their their timings and their their sort of inflections and things like that. But also having a Welsh accent, that that's got a, such his own sort of lull and um, rhythm and melody to it that people seem to find that quite funny, stroke soothing anyway. Which I've never really understood that there can be t those two things simultaneously, but that's fine. Um, 
yeah, so it was pretty different. I mean, I get really tired when I talk. You don't get so tired when you sing? Yeah, nowhere near. But also, I like, I, I speak really low. Mm -hmm. Considering how high my voice is, I speak really low, which is strange. But I think maybe it might be that, that singer thing as well. As like as soon as I go on stage, I go really, really low and really hushed, as though just like in, in between the songs. And I just I don't even think about it. It's just something that I I've just always obviously always done. But yeah, I get much more tired when I speak, especially if I'm reading something. If I'm reading a story or something to the kids in the night, my voice gets really tired really quickly. Is it because you're, you're you're perhaps not supporting as much as you do when you sing, supporting your your breath control? I mean, supporting your using your abdomen and really supporting your diaphragm. I think it's just because I I naturally speak at this low sort of end, and that just sort of tires me out. All of the repetition of that in 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 normal conversation day to day, it's fine. But in terms of you know if you're reading or speaking for a long time, then yeah, it does make me sort of tired. Did you enjoy your talk show work? I enjoyed the first series because it was new and it was a challenge and I was allowed to be a bit weird in it, um, a little bit off the wall um, and then and then it was successful and then the channel sort of got involved and sort of dumbed it down a bit and uh, would say things like... Um, I'd be like, why is there, why do I have to explain everything I'm about to do? Why can't we just show the VT and sometimes have a little bit of surrealism in there? And they'd be like, you don't understand the audience. The audience need everything explained to them, blah, blah, blah. I was like, that's so rude. You know, lots of these people are, you know, pretty smart people. Are you serious? And then after that, I just thought, I'm, I don't dig this anymore. I'm really not having fun. And I'm really bad like that. I'm super flighty. As soon as I'm not enjoying something, I'm off. Uh, with no warning, I'm just off, <laughs> which is sort of bad. But I suppose I hope that I'll look back on that quality of mine when I'm older and think I'm glad I was like that. But at the at, at now, sometimes I feel like, you know, it's a bit. I'm a bit flighty. What kind of singer do you want to be in the future? How do you think you'll evolve vocally from here? Well, I just want to get stronger and better and more able to do everything i don't know i'd I'd love to experiment with lots of different things with lot like i'd love to try some quarter tone singing and uh sort of raga singing and, and and things like that um i'd also like to try and um do things with my vibrato there's this girl i know back in cardiff called angie and she's got this ability to to use her vibrato really slow like she's in some old german cabaret but then twittery the fastest vibrato I've ever heard, like a bird. It's incredible. So I, I and I and I've got I can do it a little bit. Like I can, I can put um, my vibrato into a rhythm. Yeah, but I find it kind of. But so so I can do a little bit of that. But I yeah, just to experiment, push it as far as I possibly can. A singer I massively admire is Bjork. Um, she's incredible what she can do with her voice, the tone. What really. Um, uh, pickles my brain about her voice is that she sort of sings right at the front of her face um, like a proper singer but with so much air and I don't really understand how that works at all that totally baffles my brain what advice would you offer to kids who have a, a stellar rise to fame at a young age with their singing? Like, for example, in, in the States, we have this young woman called Jackie Ivanko, you know, who's kind of, you know, reached success 
even I think even younger than than you were when you first rose to fame? It's really tough. It's really really tough, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I know, like to like I I fared pretty well, but it's a really hard journey, and I don't really understand how I have fared quite so well, because it's a really weird psychological thing that goes on, and you know to have fans who adore you when you're 12 and 13 years old is so strange it's a really strange relationship that is totally unnatural really yeah so I wouldn't really recommend it if it does happen you've just got to sort of see it for what it is which is that it, it doesn't matter there are other things in life which are far more important like your family and your friends and the rest of your life and your ability to, to live, you know, the rest of your life once you're sort of out of that period. And because uh, I, sh I should imagine at that point, like most child stars, you're very closely watched, you know, and very closely controlled as well, because generally you make a lot of money for a lot of people. So, yeah, I just sort of that would be my only advice just to try and see through it and see it for what it is, which is, I don't know. Can I swear? <laughs> okay, fair enough. But you can swear on this recording or just get edited out. Which is a pile of... That was Jackie Ivanko with Ombra Mai Fu. I'm chatting with Charlotte Church. This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. Charlotte, you have two kids. Um, what are their voices like and do you encourage them to sing? They've got lovely little voices. So, yeah, we just we, we encourage them as, you know, as much as any other parent would do. Not too much, not over the top. But, they, yeah, they're, they're always round and about singing. My son is uh, in love with dinosaurs, so... He just goes around the place singing the Jurassic Park theme tune. So tonight's show is drawing to a close. Charlotte, thanks so much for chatting with me. It's been wonderful hearing your stories and thoughts. Thank you very much. Nice to be here and talking about the voice for once, <laughs> which is lovely. <laughs> to find out more about tonight's guest, Charlotte Church, please visit charlottechurchmusic.com. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco, except when we're out and about recording people like Charlotte today. The series producer is Seth Samuel. I'm Chloe Veltman. Please support Voicebox. You can make an easy and safe donation by visiting voicebox-media.org or you can mail us a check. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to us are tax deductible. Find out more and send us your questions and comments via our website, voicebox-media.org. And don't forget, you can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're looking for me on Twitter, my handle is at Chloe Veltman. Here's another song from my guest Charlotte Church's latest album, One and Two. How not to be surprised when you're a ghost. Have a songful week. i
Get you down, you mustn't let